ahead and open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship in song. Lord, we ask you to guide and lead us as we continue on in the worship of your word. And let your spirit lead and guide as we open up the word. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to continue in 1 Timothy chapter 5 from last week. And we're going to reread the whole section again so that we have our context of where we left off. Uh, very long section. But we're going to start 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 3, going through verse 16. Honor widows that are widows indeed, but if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requit their parents, for that is good and acceptable for God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusts in the Lord and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things I give you charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied his, the faith and is worse than an infidel. Let not a widow be taken into the number under th 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith, and wherewithal they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but toddlers, also in busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. I will therefore that younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some are are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may be relieved, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So we talked started this section last week. We talked about the need of, you know, family taking care of their own mothers, <laughs> and that's becoming a big problem in our day and age. We're not going to cover that all again this week. Um, and then we went on to talk about how they had to be a widow indeed. But then he goes into this verse 8, where is where we left off. He says, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And, you know, we look at this. How does God expect us as Christians to live? He expects us to help one another. And we've talked about this in Jerusalem. Paul was gathering, or actually Paul on his travels was gathering an offering to take to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was hurting. And he's telling the people, it's our job to help them because they're brothers and we need to help them. Well, Paul is extending this. He goes, we should be helping each other in the church. He goes, but especially your own family. And in our day of nuclear families and not being around our you know, elders, sometimes we look for, you know, people look for ways to, well, let's just get rid of mom and dad. They're, they're a burden. They're, they're bothering my life. You know, they're probably happy that mom and dad didn't say you were a burden when you were a child. <laughs> and that's what Paul said at the beginning. You know, it's time for you to repay. And you know, a lot of people in our day and age don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear that there's a re re return to the love and the care. And it, the thing about this is we don't do these things in order to get the love and care, but it's just an expectation. You were loved as a child and, and taken care of. It's your turn when mom and dad 
can't handle themselves. And this is what Paul's saying. He says, they denied the faith. Your faith says you're supposed to help one another. And he says, you're even worse. <laughs> you know, and he uses a very strong word. You're an infidel. Now, it's not a word we use a lot in churches these days. But it literally means that you have rejected the faith. Completely. You've rejected the faith, and you're not living the way you should. Amen. And, uh, you know, and again, we talk about this all the time. We don't live the way we should to try to please God and win brownie points with God, but because we love God and he lives in us, we will start living like he wants us to live. Amen. Not, to, not to get this great idea of, let me, let me show God, I've got to show God how good I am so he'll, he'll, he'll want me. For some reason, he wants us already even before we do anything good. And you know what? We never do enough good to, to get to where he'd want us anyway. You know, if he was going by our goodness, he'd never want us. He wants us because he chooses to want us. He wants us because he chooses to love us. That's right. you know, while we were his enemies is against him, he sent Jesus to die on the cross. We hadn't done anything to deserve it. We had done everything not to deserve it. And Jesus went to the cross. And then we get saved, and somehow we think that we got saved by grace, but we got to keep ourselves by doing good works. And you know what? We want to do good works, but it's not to keep our salvation. If you are truly saved and you have Jesus Christ in your heart, you are saved. Your works only will prove to people, as James says, you know, prove to people that you are changed inside. It won't show that you're earning it and keeping it. And here, Paul is saying that if you don't take care of your family, okay, you're worse than an infidel. Now, that's pretty bad to be worse than an infidel. You know, you're worse than the person who leaves. Why is it worse? Because an infidel has an excuse. Well, I don't know God anyway, so not taking care of my family is not a big deal. You now are disobeying God in the process, so you are actually worse than that infidel who doesn't know any better. And I've shared with you, I'm never surprised when the world sins. That's who they are. Uh-huh. You know, they're going to sin. So are we, unfortunately. You know, so it also doesn't surprise me when Christians sin. Because inside, we are sinners. We're born that way. You know, how many times do you hear people say, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, and the real question is, there's a, there's a really bad problem with that statement. The problem is you're assuming that there are good people. The real question is, why does anything good happen to all of us bad people? Because of God's grace and mercy, even to the lost world. You know, and if we start turning this around and we start understanding God doesn't owe us anything, if God wants us to spend our entire life on this world being in pain and misery, that's his, op- that's his option because he owns us. He's the, he's the sovereign one. And, he sa- and what he's going to say is, are you going to trust me? And if you go through pain and suffering your whole life, which is not going to happen, can you imagine the blessings in heaven for staying faithful if you did stayed faithful? You know, for staying faithful to his desire for your life? You know, and we've talked about this. You know, we know that all things work together for good, and I make the point all the time that it's not necessarily for my good, it's for his good. You know, who knows what, when you go through a hard time, who's being blessed by watching you be faithful to God? You know, your faithfulness may encourage somebody. And then we go, well, I don't know what they've got, but I want it. You know, 
And no need for people to raise your hands, but I'm hoping you've had the experience that I've had over my lifetime where people go, I want to know why you stay calm when everything's going, you know, going crazy. I want us to know why you, you seem to be happy most of the time, where they will say all the time, but I will say most of the time. You know, I want to know why you seem to have these things. And I love that question. You know, when I'm at work, I love that question because that opens the door for me to tell them anything I want to tell them at that point because they open the door. You know, I get to speak about God. And I get a lot of people, a lot of the prisoners at the prison will ask me, well, why are you always smiling? You always seem in a good mood. And I go, let me tell you about this. <laughs> they may not like the answer, <laughs> but I get a chance to tell them about God. And uh, so here, Paul is saying, take care of your family. In the past, there's been a lot of pastors over history that have gotten so busy with their churches and their ministry that they forget their family. And a lot of times, you know, even as close as, you know, 50 or 60 or 100 years ago, it was the idea that, well, God will take care of my family. I'm serving him. Now, here is the idea you need to take care of your family. Pastors need to take time off for their family. Missionaries need to take time off for their families. We all need to take time off for our families. And sometimes that's a pretty tough thing. You go, well, I'm so busy. And God's saying, take time for your family. You know, and that might mean taking time away from your busy schedule, going to visit them when they're in the hospital, you know, going to their house once in a while just to hang out with mom and dad. You know, and those of us who are older know how it's kind of like, I haven't seen or heard from my kids in, <laughs> in how long? Now, there might be a point where you see and hear from your kids too much, but that's another story altogether. Uh, then Paul goes on in verse 9, Let not a widow be taken into the number that is under 60 years old, having been married to one man, well reported of good works, that she be, and have brought up children, lodged strangers, washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the, the afflicted, and have diligently, diligently followed every good work. Basically, he's saying if she's too young, don't bring her in. And he's going to go on, on why not to bring that widow in. Uh, and it's a problem that we will get to. But, you know, he says, if they're over 60 and there's a good report. He goes, don't bring the one who's, you know, been running the streets and causing problems and didn't raise their kids because they don't, des you know, basically saying they don't deserve to be taken care of by the church. And, you know, for, for centuries, even millennia, the church has taken care of the, the poor and weak in their, in their neighborhoods. That's who did it. Matter of fact, before Christianity, nobody took care of the poor and weak. Remember, I said this on, I don't know if I said it on Sunday morning, I said it a lot in those Bible studies, but you know, we are returning in our day and age back to what it was before Christ. All of this idea of euthanasia, kill the, kill the senior citizens because they're drawing down the inheritance, happened all the time before Christianity. You know, getting rid of the kids, offering them to the idols, offering, you know, killing the kids all the time before Christianity. Christianity changed the world in the way we think, and now we think we're progressing. <laughs> we think we're evolving to this really new, enlightened age, and all we're doing is going back to what used to happen before Jesus came. You know, we need to understand that. This is not new. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and we are just returning back to the way things were before Christ. And we're calling it a post-Christian world. I would like to say it's a pre-Christian world that we're returning to. 
No. And so Paul is saying, if the woman has, has done good works, now is that saying she's perfect? Well, he put a great list there. It <laughs> sounds like she'd have to be perfect, but he's not necessarily saying that. He's saying, does, has she raised her kids well? At that point, he would probably be saying, why aren't, why aren't her kids taking care of her? Okay. But he also says you know, that she has taken care of the poor. She has helped take in strangers. She has washed the saints' feet. Now, and we, we talk about this washing the feet thing, you know, and it, it's become big, big things. There are certain churches where they do foot washing ceremonies all the time. You know, in our day and age, a foot washing ceremony doesn't impress me. Okay, in their day, when you came into somebody's house, you washed their feet because you didn't want their dirty feet messing up your house, and it was given to the, it was, the task was given to, if you had servants, the most incompetent servant you had because they couldn't really mess up washing somebody's feet. So you gave it to the worst servant you had, the one that would drop all the dishes and knock over the pottery when they swept. You gave them the job of washing people's feet. So when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he was saying, I, as your master, have washed your feet. Serve each other. What would it be equivalent of in our day? Well, maybe it might be somebody who's willing to go in and clean the bathroom of somebody's house. Okay? Uh, especially if it's a really bad bathroom. You know, this is, this is why sometimes when you have these foot washing things, these guys are washing people's feet and you go, well, well would you sweep, the, would you even sweep the floor? Oh, no, I wouldn't sweep the floor. I'll wash this guy's feet, but I'll never sweep the floor. I'd never pull the weeds. I'd never, I'd never go out and carry the lumber for a construction project. Well, service, you know, service. What job is beneath us as one of God's servants? You know, and this is so important. If there's something that's beneath you, you need to look and say, why? Why is some bit of service too far down? It's too menial. Well, you know, God, I've got my, my three degrees, and you know, I'm the one that studies the Bible or whatever, and you know, they just need me. Yeah, they need you to do whatever needs to be done. Jesus could have gone, well, you guys get down over here and wash my feet. <laughs> you know, or identified somebody, you go wash the feet. But he did it to show us to do it. But he says, a widow who's done service, done service, deserves to be taken care of by the church. If they have nobody else, then that was the pre-qualifier. You know, if they've got sons, if they've got nephews, if they've got family, the family should be taking care of them. But if they don't have any of that, and in that day it was quite likely because men were going to war all the time and dying, so it's quite possible that she raised a good family and then lost them. But he says, if all that happens, bring her in. And remember, we started this with the fact that in Jerusalem, the Jews had this mentality. If the, if the widows could not be taken care of by the family, the, you know, it started with the synagogue taking care of them, and then the temple taking care of them, and then it took it into the, into the Christian church. The church takes care of them. And for years, it was the church's job. And over the last couple of decades in America, the government started taking over the job. And you know what? The bad thing is, when the church did it, they knew whether somebody was poor and needy and really in trouble or not. The government doesn't really know this stuff. And uh, there's lots of people that get help that don't need it. But you know, we need to be careful. The government is taking more and more of God's, God's part. We need to be looking at the church. How is the church going to react? How is the church going to help people? Even though we see the government doing so much of this, we need to help one another because it's going to get hard. We've talked about this several times. We're getting closer and closer to the end times and things are going to get hard. There's going to be a place where the government can't do everything that it's usurped and the church will have to take it back again. 
We need to be, be ready and looking, how are we going to serve one another? How are we going to help one another? You realize there may be a time that comes even before the tribulation where we may need to be dependent upon each other because there's not going to be things out there to help. You know, it may be you own your home and everybody else, you know, four or five families have to come in and live with you because you're the only one with a home. Maybe they have the ability to grow food. Who knows? You know, we'll, we'll be able to help each other. But we need to be ready. This is why we're called a family. <laughs> Families help one another when the needs come and aren't, going, aren't being used by one another. Verse 11 says, But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. Wax wanton is a very f interesting way to say that they get desires. <laughs> and with all the little ones, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> they get desires and decide to fulfill those desires and end up getting married and, and walk away from the commitment they made to stay, stay single in the church. And Paul, and Paul is saying that. And then he says, having damnation or condemnation is a better word because they have cast off their first, first faith. And this is the idea that when they came into the church to be taken care of by the church, they committed themselves to the church. The church became their family in all essence. Uh, so they came in, they go, okay, you know, not gonna, I'm, I'm a widow, I'm not married, I need the help, and in return for my help, I will help <laughs> in whatever way is needed in the church. And so it's not saying they lost their salvation, it's not saying that they're going to hell because they got married, but he's saying you made a commitment for the church to help you, and now all of a sudden you're pulling back from that commitment. And that's why he said, get these younger women back out in the... <laughs> back out into the, to the world and the, and the, with, a, with a husband. And then he goes in verse 13. And withal they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things they ought not. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting phrase. They learn to be idle. Literally that means without work without labor. How many of you have ever been in a place where you get so bored because there's nothing to do? You know, uh, you know kids in the summer used to, you know, they start their summer and they're all excited, they get to play, they don't have to go to school and, and by the end of summer it's like, I'm bored. It doesn't even take the end of summer usually. <laughs> but, you know, for, for us though, as adults, even we get bored. You know, and it's not a good thing to be bored because if you're bored, you're going to do dumb things. Yeah. And here he's saying these women, and I'm going to say it's not just women, anybody who does not work probably is going to get idle and end up doing a lot of what this is talking about. And I, I want to take this, you know, as I do each time, I want to take this further. We're not just talking about widows here. If you are not doing something, God created us to work. Adam and Eve were created, and before the fall, were given a job. They had to tend the garden. And as I've said, I don't know how hard it was to tend a perfect garden where nothing, no weeds were, nothing fell down. You know, the, the whole tending must have been, I want a tree over there, or I want a plant over here. You know, I don't know what, what is involved in tending a perfect garden, but God said it was work. They were created to work. We are created to work. Work is not part of the curse. The fact that we don't get much return from our work 
is the result of the curse. But he created us to work, and Paul's saying, don't let them get idle, because if they get idle, they start wandering around house to house. And what happens when you start talking with people? How many of you have started talking about something, and you started maybe even talking about God and good things, and the next thing you know, well, do you know what so-and-so did yesterday, or you know what they did last week, or you know, and all of a sudden, you're starting to talk about gossip. You're starting to talk about maybe even things that are slightly off color. You know, uh, you know being silly. One of the things that scares me in the scripture is that God says we're going to be accountable for every idle word we speak. Every word that I didn't think about when I was speaking is going to have to be accounted for. Now, I can confess my sins, and God will put it under the blood, and that's, that is giving account for my, for my sin and my words. But how many words do we have that we don't even think about? That we don't even think about putting under the blood because we didn't think about what we were saying in the first place? You know, I can tell you, it happens to me. There will be times, and many of you know, that I've stopped you in the middle of a sentence and say, no, we're not going there. <laughs> when all of a sudden I realize <laughs> what's happening. And where I'm slipping into, it's so easy because our flesh likes to talk about people. It likes to gossip. It likes to know the dirt on everybody and then share the dirt that we know. And we're supposed to be putting it under the blood. And it says, you go house to house, not only being idle, but being tattlers. And this word for tattlers means to speak silly things. You know, just speak silly things. And this doesn't necessarily mean we can't joke. It doesn't mean we can't be silly, but be careful what we do when we're being silly. You know, there is a time that, you know, uh, we're told there's a time for everything. But be careful, because sometimes when we get silly, it starts to go way too far. And we want to be so careful what we speak, because damage by words is critical. You know, and we've said this before, how many people probably in this room have had a parent or a grandparent say something to them when they were young that still haunts them? You know, you'll never amount to anything. Some of the richest men in the world have been told by their parents that you'll never amount to anything, and they're still not happy being one of the richest men in the world because they still have this thought in their mind, you know, mom and dad said, I'm not enough, I'm never going to be good. You know, you'll always be worthless. Last week, we listened to the guy on the shoebox that was told just those things. You'll never amount to anything by his teachers and his parents. But God got hold of him. God got hold of him and changed his life. God can change those, but he's the only one that's going to change those for us. And we need to be careful. What is the words we say to one another? God tells us as, a, as Christians, we're to build up and edify one another. That doesn't mean lie to one another and say, oh, you're so wonderful. You're, you're, I want to handle all my time spent with you. If you don't want to spend your time with them, don't tell them that. Because they know it's not true if you, if you don't mean it. But you know, there's always something good. You know, it could be simply, I love the way you're so faithful at church. You're here every Sunday. I like the way that you study your Bible. I like the questions that you ask from the Bible. You know, whatever it might be, there's something that we can give them as an edification. And you know what I've learned over the years is any, any word of edif edification usually turns around and they want more. You know, 
in management, you're always trained to try to build people up. Even if you have to tear them down, you're, you're told, build them up, give them the bad news, and build them back up again. It works. God tells us to do it. It's biblical. Build one another up and help each other to grow. And then it says, you know, and also busybodies speaking things they ought not. And this is the thing I want us to be very careful of. We need to watch our words. Once words are spoken, you can't pull them back. And, you know, even if it doesn't really hurt somebody that much, you know, let's say you're telling somebody about something somebody else has done. Let's say it's even wrong. And they don't believe you. What have you done, though? You've planted a seed of doubt in that person's mind forever because you just said something negative about it. And they go, no, I don't want to, I don't believe it, but that's in there. And the next time they hear somebody say something negative about that, okay, no, this is two people that have said something negative. I really don't believe them, but do you understand how this starts getting into a problem? You know, we also have problems in our brains. We have trouble forgetting things. You know, and the sad thing about us, and I put it in the bulletin today, we keep remembering the things God tells us to forget, and we forget the things God tells us to remember. You know, we need to be careful to remember the things he tells us to remember. The biggest thing, we're covered by God's blood. Jesus' blood covers our sin, and if we want him to be covering our sin, we need to remember that it covers everybody else's sin in the church. Every Christian has their sin covered by the blood. Does that mean that we will never tell them what they're doing wrong? Well, you all know my first rule about telling anybody what they're doing wrong is that you better be praying for them. If you don't love them enough to pray for them, you have no business even telling them that they're doing something wrong. Okay, because you're not loving them. You've got to be praying for one another. There are times when somebody has to be said, you know, I'm concerned about what you're doing but be praying for them. Lift them up in prayer. And as I've said, more often than not, I've seen people get changed by God because they've been lifted up in prayer, and God gets hold of their heart. And if God gets hold of their heart, he does a much better job <laughs> than I have ever done in correcting people. He does, he does it wonderfully. He defends. He protects. And then it says, I will therefore that the young woman marry, bear children, guide her, or care for their home, and give none ad adversary uh, occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. You know, the lost world is looking at Christians for a reason not to believe in Christ. <laughs> you know, and they're full of, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, bluntly. None of us can live the way, especially the way the world thinks we're going to supposed to live. You know, we're supposed to be perfect, and that's not going to happen. So by the world's definition, we're hypocrites, and yes, we are hypocrites. We're not living the way we know God wants us to live. The good news is God forgives. And that doesn't mean we go out and purposely sin. Okay, I'm going to go out and sin so God will forgive me. He's already forgiven. You know, our goal is to live a life that gives no occasion for the enemy. And we see this so often. Well, we all know somebody or have heard in the news of somebody who has brought a black eye to Christianity by their, by their lifestyle. You know, in our neighborhoods, we will know people that, that, have, that say they're a Christian but live like the devil. And people go, well, if that's a Christian, I want nothing to do with it. An occasion for reproach. 
How do we live? Are we going to live perfectly? Absolutely not. <laughs> but am I letting Christ change who I am and he's lifted up? If he's lifted up, he will draw the people to him. It is important for us to live under God's authority and let him live in us. Because if he's living in us, and he is if you've asked him into your heart and you believe that, and you said he is in me, when he is in me, he changes me. He will change me because the Holy Spirit is living in me and he absorbs the flesh and changes it into him. He literally changes who we are. And we find ourselves just living more godly because we are surrendering, or surrendering ourselves to God. You know, it's not me struggling with a whip and chair to put my flesh into, into uh, submission. All right, lion, get back in the corner. The scripture tells us that we are crucified with Christ. Our flesh is to be crucified, not tamed, not controlled, but crucified. And the Holy Spirit will work on that. And then it says, if any man or woman that, believe, that believes have widows, let them relieve or assist them, and let not the church be charged that any that relieve them, that it may be, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. I'm having trouble reading today as well. <laughs> so he's saying, do not use the resources of the church to help those who can already be helped. And this is true not just of widows, it's anybody who comes to the church. If they can, if they can help themselves, the church is only enabling bad habits by helping them. And we all have limited resources. The church has limited resources. Okay? Every, everybody except the government has limited resources. <laughs> they have limited resources. They just don't recognize it. Uh, you know, we all have, if we do something, we can't do something else. And this is what Paul's saying. Don't use the church's resources to help somebody who doesn't deserve it or has somebody else that can take care of them. Let that family take care of their own family. Let that family take care of the, their injured uh, family member, whatever it might be. So what do we do? We serve. We serve to the best of our ability. We help those who are truly in need. We want to be able to do these things because that is Christian service. That is Christian service to help one another, to help those in need. Uh, the hard part as we started this on last, last week was the hardest part is trying to understand who's in need. That can be very difficult sometimes. And it's why the church is usually pretty good at it because they know their neighborhood. They know their neighborhood and they know who's in need in their neighborhood and who's not in need. We're going to close. Uh, I just want us to understand as we go forward to this, it's the most important thing, number one, is that we know Jesus. Do we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? We're told in scriptures that for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life. And that comes through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And if you don't know Jesus, I challenge you, know him. <laughs> you know, just admit that you're a sinner and that you need him and watch what he will change in your life. And we're going to close in prayer and sing a couple more songs. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. Lord, help us learn what it is that we are to do to live for you. Lord, help us to change our hearts to be softer towards you and others. Lord, for those that are Christians, we ask you to really work in them. Lord, for any that aren't a Christian, we ask that you convict them of their need of you and that they will pray, Lord, I'm a sinner, come into my life, and they will share that with somebody. 
And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.